reading of the business record for week of March 1st, the business record of Central Iowa's Business Weekly. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. And now here is our first story from the business record. The West Des Moines Chamber has announced the Minority Business Expo as part of the Athene Black and Brown Business Summit on April 18th, and that will be from 6 to 8 p.m. at Smash Park in West Des Moines. The expo aims to promote diversity and inclusion in the business community, offering participants various benefits, including booth space at the expo, online and offline promotion, admission to the summit, and a discounted chamber membership. A portion of the sponsor proceeds from the event contribute to the prize money awarded at the summit's pitch competition. And for more information and participation details, please visit the West Des Moines Chamber website. A limited liability company based in Lakewood, Colorado, has acquired three apartment complexes on Des Moines' south side, according to Polk County Real Estate Records. HMRPT owner, LLC, paid DSM Portfolio Holdings, LLC, located in Frisco, Texas, and MKC Property Holdings, located in Des Moines, $24.7 million for the properties records show. The acquisition includes the ridges on 5th Street, on south, uh, it's on southeast 5th Street. The 4.7-acre parcel includes three three-story buildings, each with 30 units. The property is valued at $5.3 million. Also includes Landmark South. That's located at 200 Dickman Road. This is a 10.7-acre parcel. includes five three-story brick buildings, each with 30 units. Garages are also included on the property which is valued at $6.6 million. The property was developed in 1977. Willow Park Apartments, whose address is also 200 Dickman Road, includes five three-story brick buildings built on a 10.3-acre parcel. The property developed in 1977 is valued at $8.3 million. And that transaction was recorded on February 22nd. In other real estate news, Stella Jones Corporation, based in Pittsburgh, paid Baldwin Pole and Piling $1 million for property in Northeast 46th Avenue in Des Moines. The 4.4-acre parcel includes a 4,400-square-foot office warehouse that was built in 1972. The property is valued at $700,000. Jordan Elwall Properties, located in Ankeny, paid Todd and Constant Reuter $2.1 million for property at uh, 100 Street in Urbandale. The property includes 20,000 square foot neighborhood shopping center that was built in 1996, and that property is valued at $1.7 million. 301 Or Labor Partners, based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, paid True Green LP $1.5 million for property at Or Labor Road in Ankeny. The property includes a 27,000-square-foot office and warehouse that was built in 1984. True Green, which occupies the building, entered into a lease agreement with the limited liability company. That property is valued at $2.1 million. Leah Holdings Company, located in Ankeny, paid for the kids $2 million for property at 804 Southwest Cherry Street in Ankeny. 
Here's a one and a half acre parcel, includes a 21,000 square foot metal warehouse built in 2016. And the property there is valued at $1.4 million. Leah Holdings, also in, from Ankeny, uh, paid for the kids $2.5 million for property at 801 Southwest Ordnance in Ankeny. Property includes 18,200 square foot metal warehouse built in 1997. Property is valued at $1.2 million. And finally, on real estate news this week from the business record, in Dallas County's SM Assets, located in Urbandale, paid five holdings incorporated $8.64 million for 32 residential lots with recently completed townhomes built on them. The lots are in Kettlestone Heights Platte, that's south of Southeast West Town Parkway, and west of Southeast Parkview Crossing Drive in Waukee, the transaction was recorded on February 21st. Des Moines chef Dominique Annarelli is partnering with local attorney and businessman Corey Gorley and his investment group, uh, FTG Investments, to open a steakhouse at 595 Tower, a mixed-use project located at 595 60th Street in West Des Moines. Prime in Providence will seat up to 190 guests in its restaurant, lounge, and private dining room. The restaurant is expected to open by late spring, and it will be opening uh, beginning daily at 3 p.m. when it does open. A building permit for the project, valued at $1.9 million, was issued for tenant improvements for Prime and Providence last October. Arnarelli most recently served as executive chef and director of restaurants for Splash Seafood and Jethro's Barbecue. Arnarelli helped grow the company from one storefront to 10 restaurants with over 600 employees across Iowa, and that's according to a news release. For Prime and Providence, Heinerelli called on Georgia-based Grills by DeMont to design a custom 15-foot hearth for the restaurant. Guests will be able to watch prime cuts of meats grilled to order on the hearth, which is expected to be among the largest in Iowa. Also, Prime and Providence will source local produce from partners such as Grade A Gardens, Dog Patch Urban Gardens, and Reinhardt's Family Farms. The restaurant's 6,900-square-foot space was designed by Dayton, Ohio-based The Idea Collective, a multidisciplinary design firm that has worked on projects spanning from New York to Malibu. Prime and Providence is the second announced tenant of the 595 Tower, a new five-story mixed-use building whose master developer is Ankeny-based DRA Properties. CBRE Group recently moved into the second-floor office space in the building. Owner-occupied condominiums are planned on third and fifth floors. This is a story written by Kathy Bolton, a staff writer for the business record. Goldenrod Companies, headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska, has been selected by Iowa State University to lead the design, development, financing, construction of Sytown, a 40-acre multi-use district plan between the Iowa State and Center and the Jack Trice Stadium, university officials have announced. Jamie Pollard said in a, and he's the Iowa State Athletic Director, said in a prepared statement, our goal is to create a vibrant, innovative, and financially feasible multi-use district that in turn will generate the necessary resources to reinvest in the Iowa State Center. 
Pollard went on to say that Sidetown's unique location will help attract more visitors to Iowa State University and the Ames community, spur economic growth for Central Iowa, and offer new amenities to students, staff, visitors, and residents to enjoy year-round. ISU will now enter into an initial agreement that provides Goldenrod an exclusive period to perform the necessary research, facilitate studies, and develop a financial model. After that process is completed, it is expected Iowa State and Goldenrod will enter into a long-term land use development agreement pending final approval from the Iowa Board of Regents. Goldenrod has acquired or successfully developed more than $4.4 billion of commercial real estate throughout the United States since its inception in 2005 and has $2.7 billion in assets under management and manages over 8.5 million square feet of commercial property, according to a release. Goldenrod has served as the master developer for the University of Nebraska's 2.2 million square foot Innovation Campus, Colorado State University's South and Foothills campuses, and developed many projects within Omaha's transformative Exarban Village uh, neighborhood. Grandview University announced its ninth graduate program will be a master's science degree in analytics. The program is designed for students with any undergraduate background who are interested is, I should say it's designed for students with any undergraduate background who are interested in mastering the process of making data-informed decisions, according to a press release. The degree can be completed in as little as one year. In early 2023, ChatGPT was released to the masses. As a consequence, com companies are hungrier than ever to hire analytics and data, data science professionals who can assist them in analyzing their data, and leveraging it to make better decisions in a fast-paced market. And that statement is from Oscar Aguilera. He's an assistant professor of analytics at Grandview University, and he offered his remarks in a prepared statement. IBC's 2024 competitive dashboard shows the manufacturing sector continues to lead Iowa's economy. Challenges in population growth, mental health care access do continue. This is an article written by by Mike Mendelhall of the Business Record. Iowa's gross state product saw a more than 9.5% increase year over year in 2023, and the state's median household income rose by 6%, suggesting continued annual economic growth according to the Iowa Business Council's annual competitive dashboard released today. In the 2024 report, the Iowa Business Council also started tracking access to mental health care and active primary care providers in the state, which is an area the organization's president, Joe Murphy, said shows a lot of room for improvement is needed. According to the report, Iowa was in a strong financial position as it entered 2024. The gross state product rose from $216.9 billion in 2022 to $238.3 billion in 2023, and the median household income moved from $65,600 to $69,588 in the same time frame. Iowa was number 31 in the U.S. in both metrics compared to other states, but Murphy said when factoring in population size and comparatively low cost of living, Iowa's competitive ability is really quite strong. Murphy said, 
That speaks really well, I think, of the tenacity of Iowa companies, large, medium, and small, for their ability to continue to turn out a really solid product and services that the country and the world demands. The Iowa Business Council launched the annual competitive dashboard in 2011 as a tool to compare Iowa to the rest of the country. It uses public data from federal agencies and other nonpartisan research entities to determine the state's rankings. The nonpartisan, nonprofit Iowa Business Council is made up of 22 chief executives from the state's largest employers. The report ranks Iowa in five areas economic growth, education and workforce, governance, health and wellness, and demographics and diversity. Manufacturing remains Iowa's top industry, according to the report. The dashboard shows that the state's manufacturing value as a percentage of GSP was 16.5% in 2023, ranking fourth nationally. That's down slightly from 17.8% of GSP activity in 2022. The state's labor participation rate was number six in the United States in 2023 at 68.1%. Murphy said the report is a snapshot in time and slight movements in rankings that are not a cause for concern. It just goes to show how diverse our economy in Iowa is with respect to manufacturing. But biosciences and agriculture and strong entrepreneurial subset are also prevalent, as well as a huge financial services portfolio across our state and obviously in central Iowa, said Murphy. So I'm not too concerned that we had a slight dip and maybe one ranking less than last year. I think that's probably reflective of the economy as well, beginning to soften in some areas. Under governance, Iowa saw jumps in its corporate tax index and individual income tax competitiveness as legislation reducing both tax areas passed by the legislature in 2022 took effect. Iowa's corporate tax index ranking moved from number 34 nationally to 2022 to number 29 in 2023. For individual income tax, Iowa jumped from number 40 in the nation to number 22, according to the dashboard. Murphy said that closing the gap with other states on access to mental health care providers will need increased public investment and has a direct impact on the state's business climate. The report shows Iowa has 207.4 mental health care providers per 100,000 residents in 2023, compared with 193.8 providers in 2022. The state ranked number 43 in the nation in this area. Iowa fares better with active primary care providers, ranking number 26. Murphy said part of the solution could be increased work-based learning programs for healthcare workers, as well as financial incentives, including more investment in existing loan forgiveness programs to retain and draw providers to Iowa. Murphy said, we've done a lot of work on the advocacy side and within our business companies over the last 18 months or so, making sure that we're aware and that we're promoting mental health investment and policy changes at the state level. The report shows Iowa outperforming most states in percentage of people lacking health insurance, ranking number five, with 4.5% of the population uninsured. Iowa saw a net migration increase in 2023 of nearly 1,500 people, according to the report. 
Murphy said that's encouraging, but still an area where the Iowa Business Council wants to see more action to accelerate growth in Iowa's urban and rural communities to retain and grow the workforce. The state ranked number 30 in the U.S. in five-year population changes in 2023. Murphy said the Iowa Business Council has had conversations with members of Iowa's congressional delegation about supporting comprehensive immigration reform as one way to diversify Iowa's workforce. Murphy said, I think we're just trying to demonstrate the need from a business perspective that we need more people in the state and that coalition should be broad and large. So it should include not only business leaders, but community leaders, state policymakers, municipal policymakers, all the way through the whole government system. The report also urges local and state lawmakers to actively voice their support in passing comprehensive immigration reform to federal officials. Murphy acknowledged that the politics involved in immigration and U.S. border policy can make those conversations challenging. He said, just because it's been long and arduous and complicated doesn't negate the fact that we in the business community should continue to articulate that need. That is a critically important economic development tool for our state, for our country, and we'll continue to speak out on that cause and work with policymakers of both political parties toward that end. The Iowa Business Council's recommended actions in the report include, one, economic growth, continue work to ensure availability and adequate stock of affordable workforce housing throughout the state to help attract and retain workers to fill jobs. In its report, the Iowa Business Council urged the Iowa General Assembly to adopt the major economic growth attraction program to compete nationally to recruit new industries to Iowa. The program in Senate File 574, which includes a host of state tax incentives to lure $1 billion projects in advanced manufacturing, bioscience, and research, was advanced by the House Ways and Means Committee last week after stalling at the end of the 2023 legislative session. On education and workforce, the Iowa Business Council's Business Education Alliance says, in the report, it will work with K-12 educational institutions and community school systems to develop scalable, sustainable solutions to provide work-based learning programs. These would include registered apprentice programs, quality pre-apprenticeship programs, and high school internship opportunities. Under governance, the Iowa Business Council urges more movement to increase the tax competitiveness of Iowa's corporate and individual tax rates with other states to address talent migration into and out of Iowa. The Iowa Business Council supported a bill enacted in 2022 that will simplify the state's income tax brackets and institute a flat 3.9% rate by 2026. Two bills moving through the legislature this year could lower the income tax rate further and more quickly. Regarding health and wellness, more efforts to bolster healthcare workers, recruit more providers, and increase public funding mechanisms. The report calls for a push to increase the number of mental health professionals in Iowa. And finally, in demographics and diversity, uh, the Business Council is encouraging the development of partnerships to create a marketing strategy to recruit people from high-cost states to come to Iowa to grow the state's population. The report says the Iowa Business Council will work with federal policymakers to modernize the current immigration system, urge state and local policymakers to voice support in passing comprehensive federal immigration reform, and support the Afghan Adjustment Act that would provide a path to permanent status 
to Afghans who were evacuated to the United States following the fall of Kabul in August of 2021. And again, this was an article written by Mike Mendelhall. He is associate editor at the Business Record, and he covers economic development government policy for the Business Record. The Greater Des Moines Partnership has announced the 2024 schedule for its Top 5 for Small Business series. The Top 5 series features experts in human resources, marketing, accounting, sales, and other topics aimed at supporting small businesses. Presenters introduce five key points on specific topics that will help small business owners be successful. The lineup for 2024 consists of six events with topics on hiring, growth, brand communications, and scaling. Each event will take place virtually via Zoom from 9 to 10 a.m. The first event on mental health and resilience is scheduled for April 24th, and the full schedule of this event can be found on the Greater Des Moines Partnerships website. An uh, article from Kathy Bolton is entitled, Here's What Commercial uh, Commercial Building Permits Were Issued in January. One permit was for a $10 million project at Drake University. A 93-year-old former residence hall on Drake University's campus is undergoing a multi-million dollar renovation project to convert the structure into a student center and home base for over 150 student-led organizations. A building permit, which placed the project's value at $10 million, was issued by the City of Des Moines in January for the work. The permit was among 19 commercial permits issued by 13 area cities in Polk County in January for projects valued at $250,000 or more, a review by the business records show. Drake raised $11 million for that remodeling project of Morehouse Hall, which first opened in 1931 as a woman's dormitory, according to information on Drake's website. The Georgian-style building, constructed with brick and Bedford stone, was named after Drake's sixth president, Daniel Morehouse. Renovation plans will honor the building's original architecture while prioritizing modern updates and amenities, according to a press release from Drake about the project. Salmon's Financial Group donated $1.75 million for the project and for development of the Salmon's Intercultural Center and Salmon's Plaza at Morehouse. The center will be located on Morehouse's ground floor. Large flex and collaboration spaces will be located in Morehouse's former ballroom. The first and second floors will include student study spaces and offices for residence life, according to release. The second floor will also include lounges, workspaces, and offices. third floor will include a boardroom and the Kinney Development Center. The Ron and Jane Olson Institute for Public Democracy and J.N. Darling Institute will also be housed in the building. The project's general contractor, Story Construction, Envision Planning, Architecture, Interiors is the project's architect. The project is expected to take 12 to 18 months to complete. Among the other permits that were issued in January, one for the construction of the Center on 6th, a mixed-use development at 1714 6th Avenue in Des Moines. The project, whose details were released in the fall of 2021, will include 9,000 square feet of commercial space as well as six second-floor live-work units for artists and others. The second story will also include gallery space for events and outreach, 
The center at 6th will be home to an incubator for culturally diverse entrepreneurs. The permit placed the project's value at nearly $6.9 million. The project's developers, Ashworth Development, with consultation from Christensen Development, and the architect is Newman Monson Architects. One for the construction of a five-story mixed-use building on Mulberry Street in Des Moines. The building will include nearly 10,000 square feet of commercial space, underground parking, and 78 apartment units. The project's developers include Lloyd Companies and Green Acre Development. The permit placed the project's value at $17.2 million. Another permit was issued for the remodeling of 8,700 square feet at Kemen Industries, located on Maury Street in Des Moines. A portion of Building 2 on Kemen's campus is being converted from warehouse to production space. The project, valued at $3.6 million, is one of several planned at Kemen. The company plans on building a 321,500-square-foot warehouse on vacant space east of its campus. It also plans on adding a fermentation facility for manufacturing enzymes and renovating and expanding a 30-year-old blending facility. That's according to public documents. In January 2024, 19 commercial building permits were issued by Des Moines area communities for projects with values of $250,000 or more. And that's a review done by the business record from 13 communities and Polk County records. A warehouse project for JT Logistics is moving ahead in Altoona. This is an article written by Michael Crum of the Business Record. The development of three warehouses for JT Logistics in Altoona is continuing with the final building expected to be completed next fall, the contractor in the project said. Jesse Rognes, president of Synergy Contracting LLC, said the development owned by Hawkeye Investment Groups of Chicago will have an estimated value of about $130 million once completed. The first building was completed and occupied by JT Logistics in January. The second building is scheduled to be completed in June or July, with the third building expected to be finished in October or November. He, uh, Ragna said that JT Logistics will lease all three buildings, which will total about 1 million square feet, to serve a variety of dis different customers. The site is on 21st Street north of Interstate 80. Ragnus said they work with multiple different companies and they do the operations of the warehouses. Anyone who wants a warehouse that already has an operator in it, they would go to a company like JT and JT would provide those services, not just the space, but the day-to-day -day loading and unloading and the management of the goods in and out. He said the warehouses are being built to specifications provided by JT Logistics. Opus Group is a subcontractor on the project and responsible for the vertical construction of each warehouse, including the walls, roof, and interior. Rick Tucker, senior project manager with Opus Group, said the second building is enclosed and work is being done on the electrical and interior mechanical systems. The third building is almost enclosed with rough work nearing completion, he said. He added that the first building was turned over to JT Logistics on January 3rd is about 300,000 square feet. The second warehouse is 250,000 square feet, and the third comes in at 400,000 square feet. Both Tucker and Rognes talked about how the development is a natural fit for the area, which is ripe for industrial growth. Tucker said, 
the data centers are what's driving a lot of the industrial development around there. Those buildings require a lot of support. I think that's why there's a big influx of that development in that area right now. And just the access to I-80 right there is great. And you're seeing just kind of a perfect storm being development, being pro-development and good access and visibility. Rognes cited the city of Altoona's willingness to work with groups on industrial development for the growth in northeast areas of the metro. But he added, the proximity to major interstates, you have Amazon just up the road with two large warehouse facilities, and you have the Meta facility along with renewable energy incentives through Mid-American Energy that some of these companies have been able to work with. So I think there's multiple drivers there that have helped promote this kind of industrial development. Justin Lossner, Senior Managing Director at JLL, has been named the 2024 Iowa State University Ivy College of Business Commercial Real Estate Professional of the Year by the Business Record. He will be honored at the Business Record's Commercial Real Estate Forum, which is scheduled for April 25th at the Downtown uh, Hilton uh, Hotel. The award is designed to highlight an outstanding CRE professional from Central Iowa for their professional accomplishments and community engagement. Lossner, 43 years old, has spent about 20 years striking deals in commercial real estate, the last 10 at JLL in Des Moines, after time with the commercial real estate firm of Principal Financial Group working on deals in New York City and with R&R Realty Group. In nominating Lossner for the award, Bob Volgosang cited Lossner's achievements despite the turbulent national market. Volgosang wrote, Justin has undoubtedly made a significant impact on the real estate industry with his accomplishments. In his nomination letter, Volgasang cited Lawson's role in the largest lease transaction at 801 Grand, with F&G selling 225,000 square feet of 909 Locust Street to Federal Home Loan Bank and the largest mixed-use transaction in Des Moines with the West Glen portfolio. Lawson was also involved in the sale of 180,000 square feet by Dot Dash Meredith, the Mid-American Energy Company, and the sale of more than 500,000 square feet for Wells Fargo in West Des Moines. According to Volgasang's letter, Lawson was involved in closing 1.47 million square feet in office transactions totaling $145 million in 2023, co-leading the JLL brokerage office to a record year with 238 transactions covering 5.28 million square feet of space, totaling more than $400 million in transaction volumes. Lossner founded JLL's Des Moines office with his partner Marcus Pitts in 2014. That followed a career path that took him from working for commercial real estate broker Darren Ferguson after he graduated from UNI to a real estate firm or principal financial group where he worked on deals in New York City and back to Iowa where he worked at R&R Realty Group. In addition to a host of professional accolades, Lossner has had a strong presence in the community. According to nominating materials, he has served as president of the Iowa Commercial Real Estate Association, as real estate director of Make-A-Wish Foundation, and served at Des Moines Social Club. He also ran a Man of the Year competition for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Iowa, and sits on the Des Moines Supportive Housing Collective, the Greater Des Moines Partnerships Downtown DSM Board, and on the board of the entrepreneur organization EO Iowa. Lostner said he was drawn to commercial real estate as a career because he's a self-professed architect nerd. I just love architecture, historic, modern, everything in between, he said. 
I've always had a strong interest in agriculture and history. So for me, that's the framework of what's been done in the past and maybe more uniquely what can be done in the future. So from that perspective, I've always had an interest in office space and how we occupy office space. One of the biggest changes Lostner said he's seen over his career is the shift from a densely structured office space to the more open environment many companies are using today. Historically, an office was a dense work environment, which is not efficient, frankly doesn't promote a lot of collaboration. Lostner said, I'd say about 10 years ago, that's when we really started to see traction led by tech companies. I give a lot of credit to how some of these young entrepreneurial companies thought about occupying space, and it was just completely different from the old guard. While the trend was already happening before the pandemic, the effects of COVID-19 had on commercial real estate market expedited the process for many companies, Lostner said. Talk about how office space is used will continue as companies work to balance bringing employees back to the office with meeting demands for flexibility. That will include the continuation of companies that currently occupy Class B space looking to upgrade to Class A space as they look to add amenities that will bring workers back to the office, Lostner said. He continued, I think the discussion going forward is really finding that balance of access to amenities, the traditional stuff, but also the real estate stuff. Can someone just unplug and go hang out in the lobby for a change of scenery? Do they have access to a rooftop or patio or walk across the street to grab coffee or whatever? And you can learn more about Lostner and his views on the Des Moines commercial real estate market and its future in the business records annual real estate magazine, which is handed out at the April Forum and earned certs in the weekly edition. You are listening to this week's edition of the business record, March 1st, 2024. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of the business record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now let's get back to the business record. We now turn our attention to the opinion page of the business record. Uh, the first column we'll read is the Albert Files. It's addictive sports betting. This is a column written by David Albert of the business record. Sports betting like cancer rates in bad water is a growing problem in Iowa. There's a relatively simple solution, limiting advertising, which I'll get into in a minute, but first some background. As a relative, uh, sports betting has a long history, although online betting has been legal only since 2018 when the Supreme Court struck down the 1992 Bradley Act, which had severely limited sports betting at the dawn of the digital age. Iowa, which pioneered modern-day lotteries and riverboat gambling, has four decades of gambling experience and was among the first to embrace legalized sports betting in August of 2019. More recently, Iowa became the first state with a college-level sports betting scandal when more than two dozen athletes at Iowa State University and the University of Iowa were charged last year with illegally placing bets. No one involved looked good. Not the athletes, not their friends and families who shared betting accounts with underage players, not coaches or administrators who failed to warn how easy it was to get caught with modern technology, not even state police who, defense attorneys allege, lied to at least one player. But the problem is larger than Iowa. 
A recent report on CBS's 60 Minutes focused on how gaming companies use science and technology to target men under 35, leading one addiction therapist to declare this is a public health emergency. With little regulation, the odds are all in favor of betting companies. Few guardrails exist, partly because everything has happened so fast. Plus, beneficiaries include governments that receive a cut of sports bets as taxes. The amount Iowans wagered on sports bets grew from $368 million in fiscal year 2020 to $2.25 billion during 12 months ending June 30, 2023, according to the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission. Nationally, according to Legal Sports Betting, a trade publication, $300 billion has been gambled since the online, gate, online gates opened in 2018. The same publication predicted that more than $23 billion would be bet on this year's Super Bowl. A January poll by St. Bonaventure Siena Research shows how widespread and wide open sports betting has become. It said that nearly one in five adults, or about 50 million people, say they have at least one account with an online sports book, while roughly 45 million say they have at least one app for betting on a mobile phone. Among those with phone apps, nearly half said they check betting odds at least once a day with 24% saying they check the odds more than twice a day. 60 Minutes found anecdotal evidence of individuals who gambled away student loans and inheritances. Correspondent L. John Wertheim said, No one really knows how bad the problem is because the bookmakers have all the data and they are not talking. There is no federal funding for research, he added. Wertheim noted, however, that the United Kingdom has placed limits in how betting companies advertise. He also interviewed Harry Levant, a lawyer who successfully sued tobacco companies and who recently joined two law school professors to wage war against mobile phone gambling addiction. Reporting by Wertheim and others suggests that limiting advertising can slow the industry's mushrooming growth. Hard liquor and tobacco are two other so-called vices that have experienced advertising limits. According to National Public Radio, at the dawn of television in 1948, hard liquor makers agreed to a self-imposed ban on TV advertising. It lasted until 1996 when local stations began airing ads for spirits. Since 2002, liquor ads have appeared more widely on networks and cable channels under an agreement that imposed restrictions on when the commercials can air and whom they can target, not underage viewers. Cigarette advertising was banned from television and radio in 1971, and smokeless tobacco was banned in 1986. Wider bans affecting print, billboards, and other types of media followed and continued into the 21st century. While limited advertising is one answer for addictive sports bettors, Implementing it anytime soon in our current political atmosphere will be about as easy as solving Iowa's cancer or bad water problems. And again, this is an opinion piece written by David Elbert of the Des Moines Register entitled Elbert Files. U.S. Cellular has announced the winners of its sixth annual Black History Month art contest with the Boys and Girls Clubs of Central Iowa. Members of Boys and Girls Clubs of Central Iowa were encouraged to create original pieces of artwork that represents influential black STEM icons. 
These include historical figures, world leaders, scientists, and educators who have made vital contributions to the world of science, technology, engineering, and math. The public voted online to select the winning artist based on creativity, interpretation, and overall impression. The winning artists from each club were awarded gift cards in the following amounts. First, Romelo Santos of Des Moines, $250 for first place Lonnie Johnson portrait. Koa Tai of Des Moines, $150 for second place Martin Luther King Jr. artwork. And finally, Jacqueline Carrillo of Des Moines, $100 for third place Ruth Ella Mora uh, creation. The Iowa Agricultural Literacy Foundation has awarded 175 grants to schools across Iowa to bolster the integration of agriculture and classroom instruction or after-school programs with an academic focus. The Agriculture in the Classroom Teacher Supplement Grants are designed to help teachers initiate new projects that promote agricultural literacy in students. The grants, which are funded by the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation, can be used toward innovative lessons, activities, classroom resources, guest speakers, outreach programs, field trips, and other projects. Teachers can receive up to $250 for each project. The Harkin Institute will host the 2024 Harkin Retirement Security Symposium on April 30th at Drake University's Olmsted Center. One of the keynote speakers will be journalist Mark Miller, who is the author of Retirement Reboot, Common Sense Strategies for Getting Back on Track. The theme of this year's symposium is Navigating the Journey to Financial Wellness, where attendees will discuss the challenges of retirement, financial security, the event will also be live streamed for those who cannot attend in person. To learn more about this event, you can contact the Harkin Center webpage. Addressing racial disparities, Directors Council First Executive Director shares her goals. This is an article written by Emily Barsky Wood of the Business Record. Data in the 2021 Economy Report tells a story about the disparities black residents in Polk County face. For example, in 2019, Des Moines was named the 10th best city for business and careers. However, there were only 36 black-owned small businesses in Polk County that were registered with the Iowa Economic Development Authority at the time. Since the organization formed in 2004, the Directors Council has advocated for addressing barriers that lead to such disparities. Among its initiatives, the organization hosts the African-American Leadership Academy and the One Economy Reports. Until July of last year, the organization was entirely led by volunteers, all of whom were equally successful and busy black CEOs and executive directors. In the summer, the organization brought on Jerrica Marshall to serve as its first executive director to continue to work on a day-to-day -day basis. The business record Recently caught up with Marshall to learn more about her and the goals she has for the Director's Council, and the following Q&A has been edited and condensed for clarity. First question, tell me about your relationship with the Director's Council before you were named Executive Director. Her response, I actually was an African American Leadership Academy graduate. I was on the Committee for the Black Urban Professionals, the networking group. I was kind of intertwined in quite a few of their different initiatives in different ways. Next question. When you came as executive director after the nonprofit had previously been run solely by volunteers, what changed with the organization? 
This year is the 20th anniversary for the Director's Council, so we're excited about what this year will bring. But it's totally different. We were completely board-run before in a volunteer capacity. Everybody on my board is an executive director or CEO of another organization, which, of course, requires the focus. Now there's someone dedicated to this work day-to-day, pushing the needle forward and making sure that this work is able to continue at a pace that everybody loves. It's time for us to come up with a new vision of the One Economy Report. So we're really laser-focused on that and making sure we have the updates to that this year. How would you summarize what the Director's Council does and why the business community should care? The Director's Council is focused on making sure that the same experience that the majority are receiving in Des Moines, that Blackpool County will receive the same. We're focused on health, housing, education, employment, and financial inclusivity. We want to make sure that there's not a gap. Our role is to make sure that we find some real solutions so everybody can enjoy Des Moines the same way. Next question, since joining the organization, what have been some of your biggest goals and areas of focus? It's the one economy report at this point. The city of Des Moines has been great at adapting this report. It's utilized everywhere. We want other nonprofits and organizations to use this report so that they can continue to do the hands-on work. We know that we're not direct service driven. We're working on systemic issues, and that's where our new goal and our new direction is going. But this allows us to still support the other nonprofit organizations that are doing the direct service work that we need here. The last time the One Economy Report, which was the blueprint for action, came out was in 2020. Now we're ready for the new version in 2024 so we can really see where we've made progress. Especially during the pandemic, some things have slipped and we need to make sure that we're putting focus on those items. There are definitely some other pieces that we're continuing to work on. Next year, we're hoping to have a new version of our report on future leaders for public service. It shows where there are upcoming needs in elections so we can get people of color involved in public service. What does creating the new One Economy Report entail? It's a big undertaking. We have to have a data research partner in this work, and that's the biggest thing. We're in the process right now of solidifying who our data research partner will be because we want it to be more evergreen. We want to support some of the other disparity reports that are out so that they're modeling some of the work that we want to do. We want our website to be evergreen and to show that data regularly so people could go and check on it whenever they need to. You mentioned that some areas of focus might have slipped with the pandemic. Specifically, what are some of those? It's hard to say. I think the data will really speak for itself and then it will narrate the picture for me. But what I can say is we weren't able to do direct service the way that people would like to, and a lot of times there's a trust factor missing. When we're talking about financial services, there's a lack of trust according to what we're seeing in the data and years of history with that. Having so much being done remotely meant not being able to be hands-on with the community. That affects not being able to have schools open. That's going to adjust how we see data before. We know that there are going to naturally be some setbacks because of the pandemic. The question is, how do we bounce back? Tell us a little bit more about the interaction with direct service providers. It's the convening of folks. I think for us, it's just me being out in the community and meeting with the leaders from other organizations because I'm only as useful as the things I know about. I need to be meeting with all these different organizations so I know what their services are. Because of the One Economy Report, other organizations reach out to us and say, hey, who can I reach out to for this? 
or is it something that the director's council can do? Maybe it's not where we're going as an organization, but I know where I can send you. I know who has the resources. Our goal is not to double dip into what other people are doing. It's to make sure that we're helping and being a real resource for our community. What are some of the things that specifically drew you to the role? It was the opportunity to continue to work that impacts my community day to day. In other roles, I found ways to make sure that I was still working with my community. When I worked at Wells Fargo, I was a part of their affinity groups and on the philanthropy side, making sure that we were providing funds and resources to the community. At the Greater Des Moines Partnership, I started off working on their events team where I was an assistant with the farmer's market. I looked at the farmer's market and said, this doesn't match the community as a whole. The vendors that we're seeing here aren't mirroring our community. We partnered with organizations like Ladylike and started its incubator program to offer more vendor booths for small black woman-owned businesses to be at the market. I always found ways to try to work with and for my community. Are you still involved with the African American Leadership Academy? A response, I still sit on all the sessions because I think as a leader, you can never have too much education or time to pour into your leadership skills, and that's what they're learning in the classes. It's never a bad time to brush up. I meet with the cohort once a month. Lead Des Moines is also, a Lead DSM is also located in the C3 Center, so we collaborate on that space as well. What does it look like for people to come to community and feel welcome to you? Well, I can use an example of what I did just this year. Dr. Ian Roberts, a new Des Moines Public School Superintendent. We were so excited to have him here. Terry Caldwell Johnson is board chair for the director's council, but she's also a member of the school board. She told us about it and let us know that he would be coming. We were so excited about what that meant for our students, not just our black and brown students, but especially those students that have that example in the schools to show every day what that could look like for them as a leader. Have that example is so important for our children, especially our black boys. When we saw that he was coming in, we said, we need to make sure he has roots here. We had a joint venture with Des Moines NAACP, and we had a welcoming reception for him. We invited the school board. We invited members of the school district, also our community leaders, our NAACP president, our nonprofit organization leaders, the ones that especially deal with our youth. So that way, when he comes in, he comes in with an arsenal of resources. He knows who to reach out to if he needs something. If you had to narrow it down to one thing, what's the one wish you had for the community? So often we hear about the stats of Des Moines, the number one city for this. We have a section of one economy report that's called the tale of two cities that shows the disparities. I want the city accolades we have to be true for all. That's my wish, is that everybody has the same experience in the city. I love Des Moines. I'm not from here. I'm from Rockford, Illinois. Originally, then I was in Waterloo for most of my adulthood and then moved to Des Moines about eight years ago. But it has become home for me. I love it here. I have my favorite places to go. I have recommendations for days. I try to tell everybody about the wonderful love of Des Moines. But that's not everybody's experience. And so that's my wish is that everybody has the same experience. What do you do outside of work? It's, if it's not work, it's something that still works with my community. Right now, the passion project outside of work is with Ladylike a group that connects black and African women in the greater Des Moines area. I'm on their board, which is how we initially were able to move forward with some of that stuff for the farmer's market. 
We have the annual summer event every year where we're able to bring together black women to just be replaced and refilled in their community. I'm also incredibly addicted to reality TV. Me and my circuit are best friends. So if you ever get a gift from me, I'm sure I made it. I do chartreuse board classes with my friends and I teach them classes. What's a recent project that you did? Uh, my girlfriend just got married. I made those welcome signs with flowers. I'm also kind of addicted um, to my circuit. So I'm, I'm sorry, my cricket. So if I see something new, I'm going to try to make it. So here's a little uh, background on a glance. She is uh, 34 years old, grew up in Rockford, stayed uh, in her adult years in Waterloo. Uh, family, grandparents, aunts, uncles in Waterloo, parents in Rockford, and a little brother in Des Moines. Her education is a bachelor's degree from Upper Iowa University, and her activities include board member for Ladylike DSM, Avid Really TV Watcher, and DIY Crafter. And that's a good profile by Emily Barsky, who interviewed the executive director of the Director's Council, Jerrica Marshall, for this article. Creek University is launching an accelerated Bachelor of Science and Nursing program in an effort to help tackle increasing workforce needs. The program will start uh, this fall, 2024. Drake will offer two options for completing the degree. Students who have completed the prerequisites with or without a Bachelor of Science degree will be able to start the 12-month accelerated Bachelor of Science coursework. Students who complete the prerequisites at Drake will be able to graduate with two degrees, a Bachelor of Science in Health Sciences and a Bachelor of Science in Nursing without having to transfer to another institution. Students who take the second route will complete an inter interdisciplinary curriculum of prerequisites that combines coursework in the biomedical, pharmaceutical, and clinical sciences before advancing to the accelerated Bachelor of Science in Nursing courses during their final year. The dual degree model will allow students to either enter the nursing field after completing prerequisites or pursue a graduate level education, become a physician, nurse practitioner, our physician assistant. Students will complete their clinical rotations in the fourth year at Broadlawns Medical Center, which is expanding its partnership with Drake after opening a community clinic next to the campus in September 2023. Mary Owens, who was recently hired as the nursing program director, will lead the new nursing program. Ellipsis completes its renovations on youth independent living apartments. Uh, they are a youth service and shelter organization. They've finished the renovations on a Des Moines facility that offers 12 efficiency apartments for youth and young adults ages 16 to 21. We know the, the renovated apartments are part of an initiative at Ellipsis to help youth learn about independent living. Each resident will have their own fully furnished apartment, including a kitchen, bathroom, and living area. According to a news release, supervised apartment living service providers have traditionally had several individuals share common space. An open house for the new facility uh, will be held uh, early, early in March. Those living in the apartment will continue to have access to the Ellipsis team and services to receive individualized support and skill building opportunities, including cooking and budgeting. The apartment renovation has been a priority since Youth Homes of Mid-America and Youth Emergency Services and Shelter first merged to form Ellipsis in 2021. Funding for this project completed, 
uh, completed with slingshot architecture and grinder construction, came in large part from a grant from Governor Kim Reynolds' office distributed through the Iowa Economic Development Authority's Nonprofit Innovation Fund. Ellipsis looks to provide youth transitioning to independent living with starter kits, including bedroom, bathroom, personal hygiene, kitchen, household cleaning items. And you can learn more about the project by contacting the Ellipsis website. And our final story from the March 1st edition of Business Record, the Impact Community Action Partnership is accepting applications for low-income home energy assistance program through April 30th. The program helps qualifying low-income homeowners from Renners and Boone, Jasper, Mary, and Polk and Warren counties pay for a portion of their primary heating costs based on factors like income, household size, and dwelling type. You've been listening to the Business Record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind to Print Handicap. I'm Pat Steele. It's been my pleasure to read for you. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS.